All right, we're reading from Isaiah 53. I'm reading from verses 4 through 7. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sorrow and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Five, uh, five Sundays of Christmas, and uh, last Sunday we uh, looked at the first Sunday of Christmas, uh, prophecy about Jesus coming into the world, and maybe uh, the most significant prophecy, Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12, uh, a poem written by Isaiah, based on uh, one of his sermons, and uh, just briefly remind you that uh, Isaiah is about 700 years before Jesus, and uh, he is uh, a court a court prophet. He is, uh, has a long career, and uh, Assyria is the major power in the world at the time, and so uh, Isaiah has a lot of prophecies about Assyria and about Syria and about Israel and Judah, and uh, Isaiah prophesies a coming destruction for Israel, but he also prophesies a time of peace and restoration. And uh, Isaiah 53 is a poem about a suffering servant who comes and he does God's job and he rescues God's people. And so the question is, is who is this servant that he writes about? Who is the poem about? And uh, there have been many, many answers over the years. Some would say, well, this is Israel. Israel is God's servant, and yet it seems to be Israel that is being rescued. And some say, well, it's the prophet Isaiah himself. Some think it's the prophet Jeremiah. But as you read through the poem, a prophecy, it, it only fits Jesus Christ. And uh, one, a, just a beautiful prophecy and so as we read it today, uh, that's what I want you to see. Remind you, it's poetry, and it's old poetry. 2,700 years old. Let's slow down a little bit. Think about it. Think about the figures of speech, uh, exactly what they mean, and then how they apply to us, and how they apply to Jesus. And uh, this is what Jesus was going to do when he came into the world. He was going to be God's servant to accomplish God's purpose, and he does it through suffering. Strange. If you go to the next slide. So this is the, out, this is the, outline, of the, this is the outline of the poem. There are three verses in each stanza. It's very well balanced, and uh, it turns back on itself. So that at the beginning he talks about this exaltation of the servant. And at the end of the poem he comes back to that. The ultimate success of the servant. In uh, verses 1 through 3 of 53 he talks about the rejection and the unattractiveness of the servant. 
And he goes on to talk about that in verses 7 through 9, the oppression and death of the servant. And then in the very middle of the poem, which is the highlight of the poem, we're going to look at today, just verses 4 through 6, the vicarious atonement of the servant. Vicarious means in place of someone else. Substitutionary atonement. Uh, vicarious is... Uh, the illustration I like to use is for those, those of us who are wannabe athletes, we live vicariously through our children. <laughs> and so when they go into sports, it's almost like we're going into sports. That's vicarious. And so when Jesus suffers on the cross, he's actually suffering on the cross for us, vicarious. And that's uh, verses 4 through 6, the very middle, and that's the highlight of the poem. If you go to the next slide, that says the same thing in smaller print. If you go to the next slide. So last week we looked at verses 13 through 15. Yahweh, the Lord, speaks of his servant, and it's a surprising exaltation that is eventually recognized by the kings and the nations of the world. If you go to the next slide, and verses 1 through 3. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, the prophet describes the rejection and the humble appearance of the servant. And uh, it's, it's an unbelievable message. And he says the suffering is offensive. We turn away from the ugliness of it and the ugliness of the person who is suffering. And uh, people are turned off by it. Now, if you go to the next slide, what we're going to talk about today, verses 4 through 6. The suffering of the servant is vicarious. He is our substitute. And the suffering benefits us. Uh, the word vicarious. Uh, how many of you have used that word in the past year? <laughs> A word we don't often use, right? So, so you might not even know what it means. Um, down, down, in, uh, down the street from us is Trinity Anglican Church. And uh, the Anglican Church has pastors that are sometimes called vicar or vicars. And a vicar is a substitute pastor. So the priest isn't there and the bishop isn't there. So instead you get a vicar who stands in for the priest or for the bishop and uh, that, that's what the, the word means, a substitute pastor, vicar. Now, by the way, the pastor at Trinity Anglican, his first name is Vicar. <laughs> and so when I first met him, I go, Vicar, vicar Hodge? I go, what, I, I, is that your title? He goes, no, that's my first name. He said, my parents named me after the pastor, Vicar. So he is Vicar, Vicar Hodge. So he's our substitute. And finally, I want you to see that the suffering benefits us. Okay, if you go to the next slide. So let's look at the poetry and what it means. Verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And uh, in, your, uh, in your bulletin, you have the modern NIV. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And in poetry, Hebrew poetry, the second line repeats the first line in some way. 
or it completes the thought of the first line. So they don't rhyme words, they rhyme ideas. So taking up our infirmities and carrying our sorrows, that's kind of the poetry. It's, a, it's a saying the same thing again in the second line. Okay, now, it's a figure of speech. Okay, because it's hard, you, you don't really pick up sorrows and you don't really carry sorrows. So he's, he's comparing the servant to somebody who goes and he finds a burden and he goes and he picks it up and he carries it. That's the picture, right? That's the poetic picture. Uh, what's more is it's difficult to carry somebody else's problems, somebody else's infirmities and somebody else's sorrows, and yet that's what this servant does. Um, I have helped people move a number of times, and uh, I especially hate helping hoarders move. And it seems like everybody I move is a hoarder. At least that's the way it seems to me. Um, in our house, we have five boxes with things in it. Five boxes, that's it. There are no other, things, there are no other boxes with stuff in it. Joanne's spiritual gift is throwing stuff out. <laughs> and so, and so when, I go, when I go and help people move, I go, man, how do people, how do, how do people have so much stuff? And you carry their stuff... And a few times I've been carrying people. I remember moving somebody in an apartment in London, and we were clean, cleaning out the truck, and uh, it was my son, and we're moving him into his new apartment while he's going to school. And uh, there just happened to be one of his neighbors walked by. And he said, I'll carry some loads for you. And I thought to myself, this is the most wonderful person in the world. <laughs> Up three stories. And every, every trip he made for me, I thought, wow, this guy's phenomenal. And that's happened to me a number of times, helping people move and somebody in the apartment building just say, hey, I'll give you a hand for five minutes. And I'm going, that's fantastic. Just helping me out and carrying the load. Well, the suffering servant comes by and he sees our problems and our sorrows and he picks them up. And he takes them. Now, there's another figure of speech here. Because when he carries our infirmities and he carries our sorrows, he's just not talking about infirmities and sorrows. Infirmities and sorrows are a figure of speech for all of the problems in our life that we have created for ourselves by our sin. Get that? That's a figure of speech. And when he carries our sorrows, it also means he's carrying the root cause of our sorrows, which is our sin. Okay, now, it does, this is not meant to be complicated, right? So there are figures of speech on top of figures of speech. You have to be able to think of the poetry, think about it a while, and go, what is he actually saying here? This becomes clearer as you go on down through the poem. But our infirmities and our sorrows, yes, Jesus carries all of our problems and he takes up our pains and our sufferings. But he doesn't just do that. When the prophet talks about our infirmities and our sorrows, he also means, you know something? There's something that's caused your infirmities and your sorrows. 
and I'm just taking one little part and say Jesus is carrying that, the servant's carrying that, but in reality, he's taking exactly what causes all of these problems in your life, and that is your disobedience to God, your sins against God. Jesus takes that up too. Um, Well, notice what happens. The servant takes up our infirmities and he carries our sorrows. Yet, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. You will notice in your uh, bulletin, the modern NIV, we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. You notice in that first line, the first line is what we think. We're thinking as we look at this suffering servant that God is hitting him and God is punishing him. And then in the second line, he doubles down on that, but instead of talking about what we're thinking, he repeats, smit by God and afflicted by God, emphasizing that. That's what we think. As we see the servant because of all the problems in his life, and we look at him, we go, God is getting him. God is pounding him. And God is punishing him. He deserves it. (laughs) He's a bad person. That's what we're thinking. Irony. The irony is that while we think he's being punished by God and hammered by God, God is actually hammering him because of us, right? It's our infirmities and it's our sorrows. We're actually seeing our punishment on him and we're thinking God must hate him. Look how bad he's hammering him. But really, it's our infirmities and our sorrows that we see reflected back to us and it's ugly. We, uh, we have this idea, and this is deeply embedded in, in humanity, that If things are going poorly for you, you deserve it. And if things are going well for you, you deserve it. (laughs) And so people who are prosperous think, I must be a good person, and God really likes me. And people that are doing poorly and are getting hammered think, God must hate me, and I must be doing something wrong. And that's what he's talking about here. As we see the suffering servant getting punished by God, hit by God, struck by God, the thinking is, oh, he's done something wrong. Something wrong with him. Kind of like Job's friends, right? Job was suffering, and Job's friends show up, and Job's friends go, well, you're getting what you deserve. Job goes, well, I'm innocent. They go, hey, you better confess your sin. I like Job's second friend. Well, I don't like him because this is what he says. You remember Job's, Job's children all died, right? And he said, his Job's second friend came to him and said, your children were wicked. That's why they died. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, those who hated him walked by the cross and they thought he's getting what he deserves. That's what they thought. One of them even said this, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. Let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And he said that because he was thinking, God doesn't want him. And I can tell because he's dying. If you go to the next slide, the next verse. 
says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Notice the uh, language, pierced by a sword, spear, knife, pierced. The second word, crushed, pictures a rock falling on top of him. The two together show the suffering is serious and major. He does not dislocate his shoulder. He does not go a day without food. I read somebody asking a ridiculous question on the internet. Uh, Would you go 24 hours with food for $150,000? And I thought, hey, sign me up for that deal. Everybody would, I think, go a day without food for $150,000. Going a day without food, that's not the worst thing in the world. But being pierced and crushed is final. And he tells us why. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. He gets the ultimate punishment for something that we have done. Uh, The past week I saw this story in California about a man who was convicted in 1980 for a crime committed in 1978. And just before American Thanksgiving, a couple weeks ago, they released him from prison because they they determined he did not do it. And uh, they found some exonerating evidence. This was after they had destroyed all the evidence. They found some exonerating evidence. And uh, his DNA was not on it. And a lot of other individuals' DNA was on it. And so they figured, well, the only person that we know is innocent is him. (laughs) We don't know who did it, but we know he didn't do it. And so the district attorney, the chief of police, uh, also wrote to the governor of California and asked him to pardon him. And they pardoned him. After almost 40 years in prison, 40 years, um, for the crime was committed in 1978. In 1978, I was in high school. It would, like, it would be like me being taken out of high school, put in prison, and released now at the age of 55. He suffered for someone else's sin. Now they've got an unsolved murder. Somebody committed murder 40 years ago. He paid for the crime, and he didn't do it. Jesus was pierced and crushed, not because of his sin, your sin. Pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Um, I often think that this is a nice way to share the gospel, and I've shared it this way, that Jesus has died for your sins, and he took your sins upon himself. How can you be um, so uncaring about it? Somebody else has died in your place and paid for your sins. And it's like you don't even care. It's not right. It's not fair. Well, notice the next little phrase. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Again, just beautiful, beautiful poetry saying the same thing again in two lines. Um, And... uh, it, it kind of doesn't make sense. It's incongruous that punishment brings peace and wounds bring healing. 
The strangeness, the strangeness that wounds given to someone else bring healing to a different person. It makes no sense at all. Now, this past week, um, I was raking my leaves, and I smashed my hand, and I was bleeding. And I should have stopped and washed my cut, but I just figured I'm just going to keep on. So I've got this nice little scab on my hand. Now imagine today, I brought John Hopman up to the front. And I said, John, listen, I need to be healed. So what I'm going to do, John, is I'm going to smash the back of your hand. <laughs> I'm going to smash the back of your hand so that your wound will heal my wound. <laughs> You'll go, hey, it doesn't work that way. Right? So, so this, is, this is part of the beauty of the poetry, right? Beautiful. That punishment brings peace, and the wounds that he takes heals us. And you have to ask yourself, how does a wound to someone else bring us healing? And of course, the healing is again a figure of speech. And it's a figure of speech for all of the wonderful things that happen at the cross. We're healed because our sins are forgiven. That's healing. We're healed because eventually we will have new bodies and they'll be created anew. That's because of the cross. His wounds bring healing. His wounds bring us being made new creatures, having peace with God. All these things, rich. His wounds bring healing. Go to the next slide. We all like sheep have gone astray. And each of us has turned to his own way. Hey, Brent, do you have, do you have many sheep that you look after? A few? I'm going to have to talk to you about sheep sometime. I don't know anything about sheep, so I have to read about sheep. Sheep, sheep, sheep like to move about in a pack, in a flock. That's one of their defense mechanisms, that if they're all together, they feel safer. And so notice he says, we all like sheep have gone astray. So here we are, the pack of humanity, and what do we do? We go astray. But as human beings, we're even worse. Each one of us. <laughs> so not only are we as a pack going astray, but it's even worse for us because each one of us goes our own way. It's chaos. Uh, Philip Keller says that his sheep get lost because they see grass they want to eat. Then they get stuck or they end up in trouble and they get separated from the flock. That, that describes human beings really well. Hey, I like that over there. But my favorite sheep story is from my trip to the Brignan Fair. We went to, she, we went to see the sheep pen and they were all right up against the fence. And so I went over to get a little closer to the sheep. Now, I was a little scared of the sheep. All that little sheep had to do was go, bah! And I would have run away. The sheep didn't do that. What the sheep did was the sheep, the whole little flock of them, I forget, like ten of them, they ran away from me because they were scared. And they ran to the far corner. And they all stuck their heads into the far corner so all I could see is the back side of them. Except there is one little sheep, and he was out at the very end of the flock, and he decided, I don't want to be out here. I'm too close to that bad man. He jumped on top of the other ones. <laughs> and he jumped on top of the other ones until he got right into the corner. 
and he was walking on top of the other sheep, and his little his little hoof is do they have hoof Brent? Little foot or hoof or whatever was going right on the face of the other sheep. He was walking right on top, and he, until he got into the corner, then he was okay. Uh, he was only thinking about himself, right? Whatever I can do to get away from that bad man, I'm going to do it, and I don't care what happens to any of the sheep. If I have to walk on top of them, I don't care. I'm going to look after myself and do what I want to do. Uh, that describes us as human beings, as sheep, going astray, doing our own thing, and uh, get being lost. Of course, when he says, like sheep going astray and each of us turning to our own way, this is a figure of speech for we don't care what God says. We don't care what he wants us to do. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to disobey him because we're just going to do what we want to do. Well, finally, notice what the Lord does with the servant. The Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all. So it is talking about our sin, our iniquity, our wickedness. And God takes him, and God says, here I'm taking their sin, and I'm putting it on you, my servant. And so you ask yourself, how does he take our pain? And how does he take our wounds? And how does he suffer for our punishment? He does it willingly, but God does it to him. The Lord does it. The Lord takes our sin and the Lord puts our sin on him. And that's what happens on the cross. And the, and the gospel writers indicate that as Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, they put him on the cross at 9 o'clock, and at 12 o'clock, what happens at 12 o'clock? Okay, two of you say it goes dark. That's what happens. <laughs> it goes dark. As God takes the sin of humanity and puts it on Jesus Christ, your sin and my sin, and it lays it on Jesus, the innocent person, and there he punishes Jesus for our sin as he lays our iniquity on him. If you've got your Bible, turn quickly with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to end with this. If you don't have your Bible, you can use your phone. And if you use your phone, I like BibleGateway.com. BibleGateway.com, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. We're looking at that next week. That's from Isaiah 53. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed.
For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 